I am loving this journey we've been on in the book of Acts. I, I told Gage this week, I was like, I think I'm starting to get my head around Acts. Like, I love the idea of taking such a long, dense book of the Bible and preaching chapter by chapter through it. And I know it was a big endeavor. We've never done a year-long series before, and it's going to get long, and maybe we'll be like, hey, can we get out of Acts for a second? But I don't know if this is true about y'all, but for me, I can't get enough of this stuff. Now, this has been absolutely amazing. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 8, and we're talking about Philip's journey to Samaria and the ministry he has there, and it was such a needed and fitting moment for our church, and I believe this week is kind of like part two to that message. So if you missed that, highly encourage you to check it out. I want to go ahead and give you the title before we turn there. The title of today's sermon on the Ethiopian eunuch is going to be called From the Background to Bold Faith. From the Background to Bold Faith. We are going to witness a worshiper of God who had to stay on the outskirts of the people of God for several different reasons be thrust into the story of God and take a step of bold faith that is so unlikely given his background and his story. And that's something that happens on the pages of Acts, but it's also something that I feel like happens every week in the story of our church, where people who didn't know they were in the background discover, I was actually in the background. Like I was actually just attending church and calling myself a Christian culturally and not actually surrendered and submitted to the ways of God and not actually living with bold faith and being intentional with lost people around me. I thought I was in the middle of the game, but I was actually more of a sidelines, like cheerleader telling everybody else, good job. But now I'm gonna jump in with full bold faith. And last Sunday, the sermon was about the difference between people who believe the stuff about Jesus and people who know Jesus intimately and personally, people who talk to him and he talks to them and they know him. And so last Sunday, church ended, and it was, it was just so powerful, Holy Spirit all over this space. But this couple comes like running down front to me, and I actually got the opportunity to officiate their wedding, so I know a little bit of their story. You can see that both of them are in tears, and, and the tears are kind of mixed with guilt and joy at the same time. If the Holy Spirit's ever hit you, you know what I'm talking about. Where for them, they had a level of guilt because they walk up to me and they say, we've been in church our whole lives many of them churches around here, and they said, we're not, we're not really Christians, are we? It's like it's hitting them. Like they thought they got it, but now they got it. And I was like, you weren't before, but now clearly something has shifted. And both of them just articulated their frustration over, we have wasted decades in the pews and in the rows and just been content to sit and listen to everybody else talk about this stuff and have eternal fire insurance. But now it's hitting me. I, I, I want to know Jesus personally and deeply. They, they have a son uh, who's, who's growing up and they're like, I want my prayers to go to a God who I know. And I want to see Jesus transform my family. And with tears of joy, they're so excited because they're getting up here tonight together and they're going to get baptized side by side as they share their story, <laughs> celebrating new life in Christ. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. From the background of just, I just kind of check the box and sit on the sidelines. Too bold faith. Oh, I'm going to stand in front of thousands of people and articulate the very story that God's changing in real time. Some of you, I believe there's going to be a threshold moment in your life where you cross a line today and go, I am no longer seeing this as a story that other people are passionate about, but I'm seeing this as the ultimate invitation and opportunity I have 
to step into more of God. That's what we're going to read about today, and we don't have a second to waste. If you brought your Bible to church, hold it up. We're going to study the Bible deeply today. Hold it up. Somebody say, I love my Bible. Turn with me to, wow, that was, that was not convincing at all. Please, uh, oh, this is not getting recorded. I was going to say, please act a little more Presbyterian, even though I have appreciation for my Presbyterian friends, and I went to a Presbyterian seminary, so don't hate me for that. But come on, guys, let's be a little more Pentecostal. Hold up your Bible. Do I say, I love my Bible? There they are. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I love the mixture of worlds we have in the life of our church. We're going to pick up in verse 26. After the story of Simon the sorcerer, who totally missed the point of what it was to follow Jesus. He tried to use Jesus for his own ends, and he gets judged publicly for that. But remember, this is Philip's journey to Samaria that has led to all of this. We're going to read three chunks and explain it as we go, and I'm hoping and praying the word of God speaks and doesn't return void. Acts chapter 8, verse 26, if you're there, say I'm there. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. If you've read this story before, you know what's about to happen. This is an awesome story. If you're new to what we are studying right now, you've got to tune in for this because a lot of cool stuff in the narrative of God in the book of Acts. This one might be unrivaled in God's intentionality with the details and what I've brought before you today to highlight in this story. It begins with Philip who gets word from an angel. You might think that that happens all the time. That's actually super rare. An angel speaks directly to a human when God has details that he just will not allow to be unclear. Like when Mary, as a virgin teenager, gets pregnant with the Son of God. That's not a feeling she had of, I think I'm pregnant and I think it's God's. No, he sends an angel to go, Gabriel, you're going to need to articulate this real clear. And then you're going to need to appear to her husband because he's going to be real confused and tell him like what he needs to do on the journey. It's rare for God to do this, but when he does it, he's up to something big. And he tells Philip, Go to the desert road. Don't skip that. Mark Lamb did such a good job a couple weeks ago of uh, telling us that Philip is not a robot. He's a real person. He lived in Jerusalem and was promoted to be one of the ministers who served the widows in the church of Jerusalem. Then what happened? His friend Stephen was murdered publicly, so he ends up on the run, leaving everything he knows at home in Jerusalem and ends up in Samaria. Why does he end up in Samaria? Because Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, that's the surrounding area of Jerusalem, and in Samaria. So Philip is living out the charge of Jesus. He goes up to Samaria to preach a gospel that's probably going to get rejected. And oh my goodness, there are scores of people following the gospel message of Jesus that Philip is preaching. And now he's got a thriving ministry he's leading. And then an angel comes and says, you, desert, now. It is not unlike God in some of our most fruitful seasons to call us to the desert when it makes absolutely no sense. And I think that little detail is so clearly there for a few people in our church today. Sometimes God will call you away from something that makes perfect sense on paper 
to give you something better, but on the surface, it looks like a desert. And sometimes it literally is. We have a family in our church, amazing family, who led a community group of college students for years, and God called them to the desert. Like literally, they moved to Arizona. And, um, and on the surface, it didn't make a lot of sense, but literally that was where they were called to be. And sometimes when you go to the desert, it doesn't become this fruitful, amazing place of God's abundance right away. I think some of us think if we say yes to God, he'll show us immediately how everything is so much better on the other side of our yes. Now, sometimes you say yes to God and you go to the desert and it gets worse and you're tempted to believe he's not with you. God does his best work in your life in two places, the desert and the mountain. You read about this all throughout the scriptures. When he sends someone to the desert, he's got a deep work to do. Hello, Moses. Hello, Jesus' temptation. Sometimes he will send you to the desert. And that might be relational. That might be like a physical thing that somebody needed that word today. But it is not easy for Philip to go, I just got this thing rolling. I've got momentum in this new place. Now I've got to go to the desert. And I've got to go to the desert to meet this Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. So when you think Ethiopia, you're thinking of the country that we know to be in Africa right now. Ethiopia was in Africa 2,000 years ago. It was in a little bit different location, still close to Egypt, about 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. And this Ethiopian eunuch is in charge of all of the money for the Kandake. Another word for Kandake is the name Candace. It just means queen of the Ethiopians. It's like saying Pharaoh in Egypt. It's the person in the position who's in charge. And he's in charge of all the money, but he's a eunuch. Why? Because this was a very popular way of controlling your top officials if you were a monarchy 2,000 years ago and 3,000 years ago and even beyond that. What is a eunuch? A eunuch is someone who has been castrated, lost the ability to reproduce, lost the ability to have a family of their own. And I know this is not fun to talk about, but we got to go into these details because this is this guy's story. A lot of times kings and queens would want only eunuchs to be serving in key areas because number one, they knew they were never going to have kids, so they wouldn't be tempted to build a kingdom of their own. And number two, they couldn't have anything sexual going on, so they didn't have to worry about what was happening in the back doors and corners. They knew I can control this person and make them totally and completely devoted to making their life all about serving me. This is probably, I would say definitely, what happened to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were taken into exile in Babylon. And it's not fun to think about, but you just think like your whole life is serving in this key role. But the only reason why you have this key role is because you lost something that was so valuable. It's so traumatizing. He's in charge of the money, which means he's got access to a lot of wealth. And you see that because he's traveling a thousand miles to worship in Jerusalem as a God-fear, like a gentle worshiper of the God of Israel. And he's holding a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, we all have the Bible app on our phones, and a lot of you brought your Bible physically today. But 2,000 years ago, that's not normal. You don't walk around, oh, what you got in your chariot? I got a scroll from Isaiah and I got this gold. And I know this thing is like crazy valuable and crazy difficult to get your hands on. This is a devoted worshiper of the God of Israel, a God who openly excludes this man because he's a foreigner and because he's a eunuch. Deuteronomy 23 teaches that if you have been castrated or cut, you are not welcome 
in the assembly of the people of God. So he's not even letting that distract him from worshiping the God of Israel because he believes this is the one true God and I don't care if I got to travel a thousand miles from home, I'm going to worship him and I don't even care if I don't fully understand this stuff. I am going to devote my life to knowing more. And the spirit told Philip, just go near that chariot and listen to what I'm about to say next. Watch what happens. Go to verse 30. It says, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Stop right there. Philip rolls up to the chariot. And the eunuch's not just reading Isaiah, he's reading it aloud. This was a holiday reading for this particular festival that the eunuch was attending. And he's reading something out loud that he doesn't even fully understand. He's doing everything he possibly can to engage with this God who probably to him feels a million miles away. And Philip rolls up and goes, do you know what you're reading about? And this is another sermon in and of itself. But the eunuch goes, how can I unless someone explains it to me? About a month ago, I preached a sermon from this stage about great boldness equaling gospel readiness. And I told our church, our challenge over the next few years, and I would say decades, is that we have a lot of people passionate about Jesus who are not knowledgeable enough to articulate kingdom realities into divisive cultural issues. And the consequence of that is that even if you have boldness for the kingdom of God, you won't have anything to say when you get asked a question like this because you're not ready to articulate anything. Think about if Philip doesn't know his text in this moment. And the eunuch's like, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And Philip, in that moment, what if he's not ready? What if he has to go, um, yeah, let me get, let me get you back to uh, Jerusalem because Peter, Peter and John, like they're great. They'll, they'll explain it. And you read that and you kind of laugh a little bit, but you know, for the vast majority of you, if this same moment happened to you on the way out of church today, you would do the exact same thing. Think about if we were leaving church today and there was someone in here right now who's holding their Bible and they just heard this sermon, they just heard all the passionate songs and they're walking out to the parking lot, public side, because they're going to get a sub and they're like, hey, I don't know who you are, but whatever I just experienced in there and whatever we're reading about in this book, I don't know anything, but I want to know more. What would your reaction be, honestly? And there's nothing wrong to get an expert to speak into expert level situations. I'm not saying you don't need any help, but almost all of us, our knee-jerk reaction would be, come on back. Let's find somebody with a name tag. Let's find, let's find an elder. Like, let's get, I want our church to be a place where it is normal for you to go, I know how to have this conversation. And I know how to engage someone biblically. And I know how to engage them culturally. So when the question comes up of, hey, I don't know where I stand with all this because the world is saying this about sexuality and it seems like Christians are saying this, like what do I make of the dichotomy? Are you prepared to articulate why God's view on sexuality is a better ethic than what the world offers of you do you, whatever makes you happy? Can you articulate that? 
Can you articulate other divisive issues in our culture that our culture is so angry about and so frustrated about? And I want it to be the case where the average believer at ACC feels at least equipped to jump into that conversation and be bold. And Philip is like, oh, okay, that's why the angel sent me. How can you uh, understand unless someone explains it to you? I'm here to explain it. What are you reading? And he's reading Isaiah 53, the passage about the suffering servant who will give his life as an atonement for sinners. Oh my goodness. Could there be a passage more teed up for Philip to go, oh, yeah, I can tell you about that one. Who's he talking about? Himself or someone else? Why does he want to know that? He wants to know that because of the specific details of the text. Did you see one of the questions that was on there? It said, who can speak of his descendants? One of the things about the sufferings of Jesus that that gets ignored, in fact, in other translations, it's translated, who of his generation protested? It's not entirely accurate. It's really, who can speak of his descendants? Like his, his life was ended too soon to have descendants. We translate it away from that because we're like, come on, Jesus didn't have any kids. He was not married. Like that's not a part of his suffering. But part of the sufferings of Jesus is that a life ended too soon means your life is wiped away before you ever establish a family tree, which 2,000 years ago, that was the end of your value or relevance whatsoever. And so you got a eunuch who can't have kids, who's lost something. Who's, going, who's he talking about? The, the one who, who's suffering and has no descendants there to take his place. I want to know more. And Philip starts with that very passage of scripture and tells him the gospel message of Jesus. I'm going to give you more detail to that, but first let's finish the story. Is this helpful? I know we're just having like a glorified Bible study here today, but I think this is, this is so needed. Verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. It's great. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, if you have your Bible in front of you right now, I want you to notice how verse 37 is skipped. Do you see that? There's a footnote there, but it's not in your Bible. And then when you look at the footnote, it says, some manuscripts include here, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The reason why verse 37 is a footnote in your Bible is because it was added later by a scribe who wanted to give more color around this story. Apparently the, uh, the early church didn't love the idea of someone getting saved, finding water and going, dunk me, man, I'm ready. Let's go right here, right now. Let's do it. And so a scribe went back later and said, let's just make sure there's a full confession and, and let, let's make this sound good, which happens a couple of times in your Bible. Here's what I love about the Bible. When that happens, the Bible is honest about it. I know a lot of us have believed lies about how the Bible was contrived and brought together. Do you know there's more historicity to the manuscripts of the New Testament of your Bible than any piece of literature from 2,000 years ago? And it's not even close. Yeah, I know, but my professor said, no, no, if you're actually objective about the facts here, the Bible is honest about, hey, somebody added this later. Like at the end of Mark, you know, Mark ends so abruptly. It's like, they were afraid, they didn't know what to do. And then someone added this this story that sounds nothing like Mark whatsoever. And it's written in different uh, font in your Bible. And it's basically your Bible going, yeah, Mark didn't write this. But it doesn't mean that what got put there, it doesn't mean that the footnote is not actually true. He could have said that, but the story is what it is. And so verse 37 is skipped. And we go to verse 38. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Why? 
Because baptism is the next step for somebody who's like publicly, I want to align with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm ready. I believe he died to save me. I'm in. He's baptized. Watch verse 39. This is crazy. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azadus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And we will not see Philip again until Acts chapter 21 in Caesarea when Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and the apostle Paul show up to stay at his house. This is the end of his ministry as we know it in the book of Acts, and it ends on an incredible note. He baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he teleports away. Elijah does this in the Old Testament. It's weird. It's like, I'm in this place and I'm in another place. It's like that movie, Jumper. Anybody seen Jumper? No? You're just like the last service. (laughs) Guys, this is kind of a soapbox and a hot take for me, but I would argue Jumper is one of the most underrated movies ever made. And it gets ignored because it stars Hayden Christensen, who we know dropped the ball as Anakin Skywalker, way too emotional, overacted. That is not what Anakin is like. We need another shot at that. He did horrible. I'm not going to lie. But Anakin, not Anakin, Hayden Christensen comes together with Rachel Bilson in Jumper and together alongside Samuel L. Jackson formulate an incredible movie that none of you have seen. And it came out in 2008. I'm just saying, I, I was telling Gage, I was like, I might go on a soapbox about Jumper. He goes, bro, you just need to know. I'm looking at the Looking at Google right now, Rotten Tomatoes has it as an 11. I was like, okay, the Lord works with the underdog. I, I, need, I still need to promote this movie. I think it's a great movie. I think it's underrated. I'm not saying it's the greatest movie of all time. I think it's underrated. And then I was, I was telling our LDPs, who are interns a couple months ago, I was like, y'all haven't seen Jumper? They're like, no. I was like, they were like, what, what year did it come out? And I Googled it. I was like, oh, it came out in 2008. That wasn't that long ago. And they were like, no, that was a long time ago. And I was like, what world are we living in? That 2008 was a long time ago. Anyway, check out Jumper. I say all that to say this moment in Acts chapter eight, where Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch is what I would call a threshold moment in the story of God's people. Everybody look up here and do not miss what I'm about to say because everything's kind of building for this moment. What is a threshold? Threshold is something that upholds a door. It's like when you walk through a door, you have to walk over a threshold. And what I mean when I say threshold moment, I'm not talking about a defining moment. I'm not talking about this moment is everything in your life. I'm talking about threshold moments are moments in your life where once you've crossed over into them, you can't go back to the way things were before. It's a major transition in your life. It's moving to a new city. It's having children. It's getting that phone call that you lost someone you love and you didn't know that something was even wrong. It's my life cannot go back to any moment pre this point and look the same way. You cross over a threshold and threshold moments require elevated levels of stopping and processing. What is God doing? They require slowing down. And I just wanna slow down in this moment and zoom in for a second. This is a bigger threshold moment in the New Testament than you realize because as a Gentile Christian, unless you're Jewish and you are related by blood to the people of Israel, to Abraham, this is true about you. Did you know through an African eunuch, that is how you were invited into the story of God in the book of Acts? You know you weren't there at Pentecost in the upper room. No, you're not Jewish. That's not your thing. This is the moment 
The gospel goes beyond Jerusalem. And Samaria is like half Jews. They'd intermingle with these other people. But this is the very first conversion of someone who's literally from the ends of the earth. What did Jesus say? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Kid you not, cannot make this stuff up. In the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago, people had a nickname for Ethiopia. They called it the end of the earth. And I'm reading that this week. I'm just like, Jesus is tongue-in-cheek in more ways than you realize. And to the ends of the earth, the first person converted, the moment you and I enter into the story, is an Ethiopian eunuch from the end of the earth who thought, I'm traveling a thousand miles just to get within striking distance of the one true God, like just to hang out on the outside of the temple. He can't go in. He's totally excluded because of his condition and because he's a foreigner, but he's reading this passage and all of a sudden Philip's telling him, hey, that suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which it wasn't called Isaiah 53, it was just called Isaiah and it's all one big scroll. That suffering servant's the son of God who came down from heaven to invite all nations and all people groups into the story And I did not know this until I was studying this passage this week, but there is no book of the Old Testament that speaks to the dignity and the future of foreigners and eunuchs like Isaiah. If there is one prophet this man is reading, it is not an accident that it's Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah chapter 56, which is super close when you consider that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah, and he's in 53, I gotta believe that Philip, who started with this very passage of scripture, the first place he went was Isaiah 56 to go, oh, you, oh no, you have no idea what is written in this scroll about you. I'm gonna take you into this moment and I'd want you just, just sit, you don't gotta turn there, just receive this. You need to hear this verse and then I'll read the subsequent section. Isaiah 56, three says, this is a prophecy, 800 years before this moment. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Isaiah says there's coming a day in the future where the foreigners are no longer excluded and where the eunuch no longer feels worthless. This guy is both of these things. You gotta visualize this in your moment, Philip's going, The suffering servant that you're reading about gave his life so that you would no longer be separated from the family of God. Everything about you that you want to change, every main struggle that you've probably had for years is now being spoken to in an intimate way by the God of the universe. Look up here. The moment God opens the door for the gospel to go out to all nations, he does it in the most personal and intimate way he possibly can. Because our God is a God who can be doing billions of things across the board at once and be so present with the one. He can be in this moment whispering your name and your story to you as a 34-year-old man is articulating gospel realities from a stage. Some of you are here and passing the time in church and ready for lunch. But some of you are here hearing these songs and hearing this sermon and you know something is resonating in your spirit that's calling you into a whole new dimension and a realm of living and it's bigger than you ever thought possible but you're going, I don't, I don't wanna waste my life on everything I was just looking at and wasting my life on. And God has an ability of coming face to face and going, hey, you traveled a thousand miles to find me. I came even further and more personal to tell you I found you first. 
You're mine. You are not just a dry tree with no ancestors on the way. Oh, no, no, no. I got something for you. Here's what else is in Isaiah 56 right after. You're not going to believe this. Verse 4. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them what? Joy in, the how, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The very verse that was on Jesus's heart as he overturned the money changers in the temple is reaching a man from the nations. And it's in a letter that is so perfectly aimed at a foreign eunuch. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Only our God is this intentional and this personal. You get a memorial and a name. He's just bringing this man in so close. Hey, I know, I know. You feel like your life is worthless and you feel like no ancestors will be there to carry on. But there's more to the story. In fact, there's more to the story than I even realized. I'm standing there in worship this morning and Abby was reading Isaiah 53. I never saw how on the backside of Isaiah 53, it talks about the descendants and the inheritance that God will give to the suffering servant on the backside of his suffering. It's almost like God has been clear with Jesus that yes, you gave up your life on earth, but what you will inherit, a memorial and a name far greater. And to the eunuch, he's going, yes, there is pain involved here, but I've got a better story and you are invited to be a part of the family. Can I just tell you, there is a difference between Christians who know about Jesus and Christians who know Jesus personally and intimately. You, I've said it as clear as I've ever said it last week. There was a, like a palpable tension in the room because you could feel the difference between cultural Christians at our church and people who know Jesus personally. You could almost feel it in the room. It was weird. It was hard to even stand here, but you could feel the line being drawn. If you don't know Jesus intimately and personally for yourself and walk with him and speak with him, let me just slide this across the table to you. You're in this room right now. Is he speaking? To a eunuch, he had something so personal and specific to you. If you have ears to hear and a heart that pursues and you draw near to God, you'll find out he was already drawing near to you. Do you know Jesus personally and intimately? And if you do, the only rightful response is to move from the background to bold faith. And what, what's my next move? If you know him personally and intimately and you realize that you're in this story that's about the gospel going out to all nations, the only rightful response is, I got a part to play. I got to get in the game. That happens in Acts chapter eight. Did you notice how weird it is that this guy goes from like a background? Yeah, I'm just traveling to Jerusalem with my scroll. I'm just kind of reading my stuff. I don't even understand it all. I know I can't go in there, but I'm just, I'm in the background. Then once Philip tells him, hey, there's been blood that's been shed. You're in, bro. Like you're in if you want to be. He goes from being like a bench player to the quarterback. 
He's like, cool, there's water. Let's go ahead and do this right here, right now. Like he's got this leadership capacity. Like, Whoa, you weren't even involved in this before. Now your first step is to tell Philip, you're gonna baptize me right here and right now. Why? Because when someone comes to know Jesus personally and intimately, that's not just for a warm, fuzzy feeling during worship to make you feel better about your sin. That's for a purpose that looks like witnessing to the world that needs this message of love that you've been brought into just as much as you did. And so what does he do? He manifests bold faith. Look, there's water. I'm ready to get baptized right now. I believe if you know Jesus personally and intimately, there is always a next step of bold faith on the other side of his personal revelation of who he is. And that is why this whole sermon comes down to one question. I don't have several points. I got one question and then you can go eat lunch. Number one, whole question, whole sermon. In view of God's mercy to you, that's a quote from Paul in the book of Romans. What is your next step of bold faith? If God's been this merciful to you personally in Jesus, what's your next step of bold faith? It looks a thousand different ways for a thousand different people across this room. So there's no way for me to download it. For some of you, it's the first point I made in this sermon about how Philip was called to the desert. And you thought I was just going to be quiet about that at the beginning of the sermon and go, no, that's not God. That's not, we're not. And there's an opportunity where God is moving you toward a desert season that you want to say no to. And your next step of bold faith is giving God your yes. Yes, be wise. Okay, get, get wisdom spoken into your life. But more than anything, don't let wisdom become a crutch that keeps you from ever manifesting real bold faith and taking a step. Go to the desert and trust God. For others of you, it's going public with your faith for the first time, just like Philip did. So a couple months ago, we had our largest baptism gathering ever, 100 people. It, wasn't, it was four gatherings, but it was 100 people across the Sunday. Most exhausting day in the history of our church, I'll say, for me personally. Absolutely incredible. But I told our team, I was like, hey, we got to have more opportunities for people to get baptized than just at the end of each semester because this is getting a little bit large. And we have a pretty strenuous process for you to sign up. Like, you don't just get to get in the tub because you, you feel like swimming. And so I was like, we got to do something. We're like, okay, what about summer? So I read ahead in Acts, and I was like, oh, in the middle of July, we will be on the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. That's going to be perfect. We can preach that in the morning and do a baptism that night. It'll be awesome. And then I was reading it and I was like, oh man, I got to take a step of bold faith along with everybody else. I'm calling to take a step of bold faith. I can't read this story, stand here today, tell you that God is speaking to you personally and not extend an invitation. We have 24 people who have their stories ready to go who are getting baptized tonight. Some of them are driving down from our location in Birmingham. Some of them are other places, but tonight's going to be special. If you're here and you're like, that's my step. I'm that guy. And look, here is water. Now, this is going to be a lot higher up tonight, but I asked them to go ahead and put the water here because I wanted you to see this physically. There's water right here. You don't have to wait. You can go ahead and get baptized tonight. And we're, we're extending that invitation across all of our locations. Now, at ACC, we're very careful with the sacrament of baptism in that we, we don't do like spontaneous, everybody come get in the water if you want to get baptized. We believe that's, a, that's irresponsible in discipleship to do that to people and that we need to process their story with them and make sure it's the right step. So I'm asking you, if you're feeling that tug on your heart and you're like, yeah, but... I got baptized when I was seven or I had this moment in my childhood and I, I didn't really understand what was going on. I want to acknowledge that and say, if you want a believer's baptism in your local church here, you should sign up to do it. Let's just, maybe not tonight, maybe on November 5th when we get to our next one this fall, that's a better spot for you just so you've had more time to process, hey, 
This is why that last moment wasn't what it was. Or maybe it was, and you just haven't taken time to think through, man, God was growing you over time. And baptism is not your next step. Discipleship is. And we want the opportunity as your church family to help hold your hand and get you moving on that process. So all that to say, if you've never been baptized before, or maybe you were baptized as an infant and you know that's a totally different thing theologically, and you're like, I, I like cognitively need to be the one who says, I'm in, I want Jesus. Baptism is a physical response to a spiritual reality. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is on full display as you get dunked and your church family celebrates it. If you want to do that, you can sign up to do that as soon as this gathering ends. I'll give you instructions at the very end of this gathering and what to do, and we'll get you ready to celebrate tonight. Now, that's not everybody. That's just a few in the room. For all of us, there is a step of bold faith that needs to be taken on the other side of this sermon. And it all has to do with how intimately, personally involved God is in your story. But y'all, y'all tune in with me because I don't want to be losing you. I promise I'm almost done. I told the team, I'm going to go like 25 minutes. And then 45 minutes later, here we are. But um, team, y'all go ahead and come up here and get, get, get me out of here so that if I forget that I'm supposed to be done, I'll hear the sound of the keys in the background and go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be done. The last thing I want to say to you guys before we take communion and sing some songs is just about the reverse side of everything I've been preaching to you today. This is a moment where the gospel goes wider and deeper than ever before. All nations are invited to the family of God, sins forgiven, participation in the kingdom. This is awesome. And God does it in a way that's so personal, that's so intentional. I want you to hear the voice of God personally and intentionally. But I do think on the other side of that, there's a spirituality for a lot of us that's become so self-focused that all we've ever done is listen to what God says to me and about me and for me and he loves me and all those things are true. But if you never connect the dots that God's story about you happens in the context of a global story about all nations being brought near to the throne room of Jesus, you are a self-centered Christian. Genesis to Revelation, it's not about you and God. Genesis to Revelation is about all nations tribes, tongues, and people groups worshiping the lamb in the throne room. That's what God's building. You want to talk about a threshold moment, a moment that you will never be the same after? For me, my number one threshold moment in life was when I discovered that my life is not about me. It would be awesome if everybody could have that moment. Amen? When you discover, and it's beautiful, it hurts because it's humbling, but you're like, oh... This is not, I'm like a dot in this universe and I am pretty insignificant and I thought that my whole life was the person I look at in the mirror, but now I'm realizing like God made me a mirror to shine him and not me. And and there's a global story going on that if you are not participating in right now, you are forfeiting the reason why you have breath in your lungs. You know why you're alive today? So that God can love you personally and bring you into his family And as a byproduct of doing that, use you as a conduit to get the gospel to all nations. All nations includes Publix next door. And it includes unreached peoples in Turkey, in Afghanistan, in India. It's everybody, anybody and everybody invited to the party. And for the rest of the book of Acts, we're gonna get into some ways that we're doing that as a church and that you can participate in that. But my final question is, maybe your next step of bold faith is have you repented of making your life all about you? 
decided that your family story and your finances and the very breath you have is a gift from God to be a blessing to the nations. Maybe as we take communion, it's not, God, you love me and you're speaking to me personally. Maybe it's, God, all I've ever looked for from you is to say something to me personally. I've never thought about what my life needs to say to the world. Let's take communion right now. If you got your set on the way in, you can grab that. Uh, If you are not at a place of faith and trust in Jesus, you can just leave that beneath your seat. We'll come get it later. If you didn't get one, raise your hand right where you're at. Someone from our team will come give one to you. And we have communion stations throughout the room where you can come and kneel and rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. This is where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. We remember how we have this kind of access to God. I always challenge husbands to pray over their wives during this time, but more than anything, I want you asking that question. In view of God's mercy, What is your next step of bold faith? And let's be obedient to take it. Let's take communion, enjoy this time, process, and then we'll come right back and sing.